I'm at the climate treaty talks in Bonn with my son, who's now 11. I caught up to today's guest, Annie Petzonk, in June at Mid-Year Climate Talks in Bonn, Germany. As she just mentioned, she'd brought her son with her so that he could see how these talks work. Which makes sense because, as you know from our last episode, Annie has been helping people understand and navigate these talks since the day they began in 1992. Together as a family, we have visited uh, the rainforest in Peru and in Costa Rica. As those of us here in the climate treaty talks work to try to avert climate change and protect the planet for future generations, it's important that those generations see firsthand what it means to live in the forest, experience the forest, protect the forest, and be compensated for that protection so that people's lives and livelihoods that are forest dependent can continue into the future as we try to protect the climate. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we examine that question by continuing our exploration of the origins of RED+. That's R-E-D-D with a little plus sign after it. And the acronym stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation Plus Enhancing Forests by Managing Them Sustainably. Although the exact verbiage on the plus part is a little bit wonkier than that. I'm calling this series Forests in the Paris Climate Agreement and I'm producing it in tandem with a series of articles on Ecosystem Marketplace. Those articles, which you can find in today's show notes, go into more detail than the podcast episodes do, and they're also broader in scope. I cover agriculture in the articles, for example, but I only allude to it in the podcast series, although I'm also covering it all the time outside the series. Because the articles and the podcast have a slightly different focus, I'm calling the series of articles Forests, Farms, and the Global Carbon Sink, while I'm calling the series of podcasts Forests in the Paris Climate Agreement. In the first two episodes of this series, I covered the ancient history of Red Plus, from the discoveries of photosynthesis and global warming through to the day we realized, way back in the 1950s, that forests regulate greenhouse gases, and how that realization brought forests into global climate talks. If you heard those episodes, then you know that today's guest, Annie Petzonk, has been fighting the good fight for decades, and she's helped hundreds of others engage in the process as well. 
Our last installment featured Kevin Conrad of Papua New Guinea, who joined the climate effort in the early 2000s, when the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, was about a decade old. I really liked that last episode, and from the emails I'm getting, it looks like you did too. Kevin is a leading figure in the Red Plus movement, but he told us about his days as a greenhorn, how he came in knowing nothing, how he came to understand the process, then to engage it, and finally to help developing countries, especially those with lots of forests, find a unified voice in this global process. If you haven't heard the first two installments of this series, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. If you have heard them, then I apologize while I recap a few key things. First, there is this little matter of the Kyoto Protocol. Remember, the UNFCCC is a framework convention, and the Kyoto Protocol is part of it, or will be until the protocol expires at the end of 2020. The Paris Agreement is also part of the UNFCCC. It's just a 16-page agreement that builds on and references hundreds of other agreements adopted under the UNFCCC. It's an agreement on how to deliver on the promises that countries made when they joined the UNFCCC. It does not set emission targets the way the Kyoto Protocol did or tried to do, but it rather creates a framework within which every country can set its own target and countries can hold each other accountable. I've gotten enough emails from you guys to make it clear to me that I'm confusing you by always calling the Paris Agreement a framework within which revolutionary change can happen. I use this term a lot, and I use it because the Paris Agreement provides universal agreement on hundreds of sticky issues that gunked up the Kyoto Protocol. It is, in that sense, a framework. But the actual framework convention within which it resides and on which it builds is the UNFCCC. Part of me wants to abandon the use of that term framework when I talk about the Paris Agreement just to avoid confusion. But I can't think of a better term. And if anyone out there has a better term, feel free to let me know. You can reach me at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. Anyway, back to the recap. Kevin Conrad, in our last episode, told us how he got involved in this whole thing after the Kyoto Protocol had already been signed, but before it came into effect. It was signed in 1997. It came into effect in 2005 and it was originally supposed to expire in 2012. It was not meant to be permanent. It was a huge experiment. And the next phase, which is what we now call the Paris Agreement, was supposed to keep what worked and abandon what didn't work. Now, Kevin came in while this whole thing was going on. He came in a little before 2005, when negotiators were looking at the next phase. And one thing that irked him, and this was a key part of our last two episodes, and it'll be a key part of today's episode as well. And if you missed those two episodes, you might want to listen again. One thing that irked him was that the Kyoto Protocol did not help countries save existing forest. It did help them plant trees after the forest had been lost, which is something everyone loves to talk about even today. But planting trees is not a solution to deforestation because it takes decades for a growing tree to absorb the emissions that a burning tree emits in hours. Now, it's great that we're planting trees. I'm not saying that's useless. But we have to end deforestation if we're going to meet the climate challenge. There's a woman named Charlotte Streck 
who I'm going to feature in a, in a podcast pretty soon. She runs a consultancy called Climate Focus, and she's calling for a Marshall Plan for Forests, a full frontal global effort to overhaul our agricultural economy in a way that will end deforestation. But who's going to fund it? Well, as she explains, the idea is to get big industrial emitters to cover the cost of starting that transition, while they also transition to a low-carbon way of doing business. Why is deforestation so important? Because 23% of all the greenhouse gases emitted by man come from the way we manage our forests, farms, and fields. Now, that figure was actually higher back in the 1990s, that percentage figure, but mostly because industrial emissions were lower. So at the time, deforestation alone accounted for about 20% of all the man-emitted greenhouse gases. But the Kyoto Protocol offered no way of dealing with it. Why? Well, one reason is that policymakers and the general public didn't really realize what a big impact forests were having. Scientists knew that the impact was huge, but they didn't know the exact number. So they were publishing all these papers focusing on precision. You know, they're asking, was it 18% or is it 22%? How do we account for extreme years? Because you do get these crazy years where everything seems to burn up, and then you get a year where nothing seems to go bad, El Nino years. You know, this is what they were focusing on was how do you get precise? How do we get an exact number? In other words, just like with climate change itself, they agreed on the general direction, but they disagreed on certain specifics. And this led to muddled messaging, which led to muddled policies. One of the cool things that Annie tells us about in today's show is how a small group of people, including a lot of people who I've since come to know and even work with, managed to get behind some simple but rigorous messaging on science, and how that messaging helped to build consensus around the need to save forests. I found it fascinating in part because I started transitioning into this niche from mainstream media back in 2006. And I started doing so exactly because of the messaging that Annie describes today. It was an epiphany for me back then. Deforestation, 20% of all emissions, my God, I couldn't believe it. It was such a huge and important problem. And the financing flows, well, that hit me as such a huge and important cause of this huge and important problem that I felt compelled to understand it better and to share that understanding with as large an audience as possible. But there was one huge snag. No mainstream outlets at the time were committing the kinds of resources needed to cover this critical issue properly. Sure, they'd drop a few guys into the forest when it was burning or when indigenous people did something colorful, but they were ignoring the nitty-gritty, the whys and the hows. Why is this happening and how can we fix it? Now, it's great to see this newfound focus on climate change that is happening in the media. The Guardian, CNN, New York Times, they're all covering the challenge, but most of them don't yet really have their heads around the solutions. And I'm seeing a lot of reporters raising quote-unquote new issues that are really old issues, or they're focusing on quote-unquote solutions that have already been tried and that have failed, or here in the U.S., they're focusing on U.S.-centric solutions, but ignoring the rest of the world and especially the developing world. I've come to believe that we need to understand the big picture if we're to attack this thing. And if you agree with me on that, if you think I'm doing a good job on the big picture, on the whys and the hows and how they all fit together, and you want more whys and hows and context and everything, 
then help me out here. You can help me with a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me on. And you can also help me by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. I also just migrated my site, bionic-planet.com, to the Radio Public platform. Radio Public pays me a few cents for everyone who hears the show all the way to the end. And I'll be adding a link to my Patreon page from there soon, too. I'll repeat all this housekeeping stuff later. I really want to get into the show, and I really do hope you help me out, though. The point I was trying to make is that the messaging that Annie describes today led to the creation of mechanisms for saving forests. Mechanisms, including Red Plus, that have been evolving ever since this whole thing started. Mechanisms that can help us meet this challenge, but that are largely being ignored. Why are they being ignored? Because the same people who are oblivious to climate change, or dismissive of it, or of the existential threat it poses, well, these same people have finally woken to the enormity of the challenge, but a lot of them are still dismissing the solutions, including the Paris Agreement. And they're dismissing it because it doesn't magically fix the mess. That's a mistake. And let me reiterate, the Paris Agreement is not a silver bullet. I interviewed a guy named Ernie Shea a while back, and I'll have that interview cut in a few weeks too. He uses the term silver buckshot. But a lot of pundits are railing against the Paris Agreement. They're calling for action, which is great, but they're dismissing the Paris Agreement and all of these emerging solutions as too little, too late rather than embracing the agreement for what it is, namely a framework within which bold solutions can be created, coordinated, and achieved. But nothing will be created, nothing will be coordinated, and nothing will be achieved if the agreement isn't utilized. And it won't be utilized if people don't take the time to understand it. Just as Annie Petsong brought her son to the climate negotiations in June, I'm trying to bring you there as well to open this process up so that more of you understand it and some of you will even engage it and then maybe you'll become an expert so that I can interview you as well. I want to make it clear, I don't consider myself an expert. I know I get on a soapbox sometimes, but that's because I get livid when I hear people who know even less than I do, who've done less homework than I have and question fewer premises than I have, pontificating on everything that needs to be done, lecturing us when they haven't even gotten through the class yet. Anyway, class is now in session. Let me get off my soapbox here and introduce you to a real expert. Annie Petsonk is a Harvard-trained lawyer who started her career as a trial attorney in the Environment Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. Today, she's an international environmental lawyer at the Environmental Defense Fund. Quick disclosure, EDF supports my coverage of forest issues, but they're not involved in the production itself. I interviewed Annie for the same reason I interviewed Kevin and the same reason I've interviewed every other person you've heard on this show. She is a pivotal part of this process, and I think her story will help you understand it better, just as Kevin's did. I began by asking her how she got involved in the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. I lived in Nairobi from 1986 to 1989 mm -hmm. and traveled pretty broadly in the country. And in the course of my travels, uh, I saw and had the opportunity to stay with families in their homes and have meals cooked for me. And I saw how much people depended on forests to chop down the forests to make charcoal to cook with. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, why couldn't people use more fuel-efficient cook stoves? 
and I learned that it's because they cost money and people couldn't afford them. So I wrote an article proposing that if the world was going to get serious about tackling climate change, it should develop a system where, for example, a power plant in Ohio that had responsibility to reduce emissions could reduce its emissions, but could also potentially finance, if people wanted it, more fuel-efficient cookstoves in Kenya mm-hmm. and earn credits for, the, the, the village could earn credits for doing so, and if it chose to, it could sell those credits to the power plant. Okay. And um, then the Framework Convention on Climate Change happened. I had moved back to the States, and the United States... That was 1992. 1992, and the, the uh, Framework Convention reflected the U.S. position at the time, which was that climate change, in order to address it, one needed to address all greenhouse gases, their sources, and sinks. And, and that's the, actually word for word. That's in the convention. That's in the convention. Article and it was the U.S. position, yes. and it's in the convention. Um, when the Kyoto Protocol got done, uh, I had begun working for EDF, for the Environmental Defense Fund, and it, we were keen to get established in the Kyoto Protocol market-based measures, which we felt would provide a powerful economic incentive for people to look for emission reduction opportunities wherever they could find them, mm-hmm. whether that was in reducing emissions from deforestation or reducing fossil fuel emissions or w- wherever. We needed emission reduction An emission is an everywhere. emission, yeah. It's and uh, that we also needed to to maintain and restore carbon sinks and reservoirs, um, including restoring forests. So when the market-based measures of the Kyoto Protocol were established, um, uh, measures that, particularly for the emissions trading part of it, EDF had proposed, um, those measures were open to all greenhouse gases, their sources, and sinks. But when the clean development mechanism got done, which was a project-based mechanism only for developing countries, um, there were a number of uh, participants in the Kyoto talks who opposed the idea of crediting forest protection. They felt very strong, strongly that people should protect forests because it was the right thing to do, the morally right thing, mm-hmm. and that it's morally wrong to be burning fossil fuels and it's therefore ultimately morally wrong to offset fossil fuel emissions, which you should have been reducing anyway, using credits earned from protecting forests, which you also should have been doing anyway. Mm-hmm. So as a, as a result, there, there was a big disagreement about it and the clean development mechanism was only open to credits from reforestation and afforestation and did not recognize Which at all... Which is basically planting trees. Planting trees. Mm-hmm. And did not recognize at all the benefits of saving forests that would otherwise go up in smoke. Uh, my EDF colleague, Steve Schwartzman, who had been working with indigenous people in Brazil, helping them demarcate their lands so that they could protect their lands, um, became really irked about this turn of events in the Kyoto Protocol because he felt that the indigenous peoples that he was working with had had no opportunity to participate in that decision making. 
And so he, he's uh, invited them to come to the climate treaty talks and see for themselves. And they saw for themselves and they decided that they wanted to be compensated for protecting the forests that are the green lungs of the planet. And so Steve and colleagues of his from Brazil published an article in the early 2000s called uh, Compensated Reductions. Uh, and proposed that if a country um, or a large political subdivision reduced its deforestation below a historical baseline, that it should be compensated mm -hmm. for reducing that deforestation. And they tried the moniker compensated reductions. Mm -hmm. And that name didn't really stick. Right, right. In the middle 2000s, it, we began publishing articles showing the massive amount of emissions that were coming from deforestation. And right now I'm showing you an article that we published, uh, that we, we were co-authors on. The lead author is Evelyn Trinas from the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And what I'm showing you is a series of um, bars in a bar chart with countries. And the and this is total emissions of the countries. Total emissions of the countries. The United States and, is the top. And at that time, uh, the United States. This is the the emissions in 2000. The United States was the world's biggest emitter, and you can see the emissions broken out in blue going up the bar chart for fossil fuel emissions, and green for emissions from forest destruction. The United States is the world's largest emitter. Mm -hmm. The next largest is China with a green, uh, blue, and green bar. And then, to the surprise of every journalist I showed this to, right. when I asked who's the third biggest emitter in the world, none of them guessed that the third biggest emitter in the world was Indonesia. And the bar for Indonesia is green because it's almost all from deforestation. And who's the fourth biggest emitter in the world? Brazil. And the bar is? The bar is also green. Because of emissions from deforestation. Right, right, right. And so, when we published this, um, it happened that... Uh, I was doing an interview with uh, Time Magazine. Time was doing uh, a cover series on global warming. Mm -hmm. And I asked the journalist writing for Time, who's the first biggest emitter in the world? Who's the second? He got that right. Then I asked, who's the third? And he had no idea. Mm -hmm. And when I told him, um, he got that on the cover of Time Magazine. Yeah. And so that was part of what began to change the, the public's understanding of the climate problem, that the climate problem is in large measure a fossil fuel emissions problem, but it is also in large measure a problem of the disappearance of the world's forests. Right, right. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, I don't know if it was the Time story, but I remember seeing that statistic and it was such an epiphany to me as well and it it, it does it changes the way you you, you approach everything um now what what was happening within the talks then because you also had within because you, you have now you have this growing public awareness of the role that deforestation plays but then within the talks you still have this sense that industrial emissions and emissions from agriculture are two different things right what uh, right and so um the Brazilian government at the time was quite happy with that perception to be in the in the talks, and uh, one of the things we we did was working with the Dutch government. We uh, invited NGOs, including Brazilian civil society, to a meeting on this topic, mm -hmm. and the indigenous people from Brazil and the rubber tappers and the people who live in the forests 
had an opportunity to confront their government outside Brazil mm -hmm. um, and to make the case that their government was not representing their interests. Mm -hmm. And so that began a, a realization among countries in the talks. And this was when? Uh, that must have been in about 2006, 2005, 2006. Okay. So Mon Montreal or? It was, just, it was just before Montreal. Okay. And then um, uh, the NGOs who, uh, who were in a very well-intentioned way, adamantly opposed to crediting what we now call reductions in emissions from deforestation, uh, said, look, you can't measure this stuff. It's not permanent. It has leakage. If you protect a forest in one local place, somebody will go chop it down in the next local place. So we decided to tackle each of those questions seriatim. And we pressed the UN... FCCC, the Secretariat, and governments to convene a meeting of scientists to discuss this measurement issue. And they in fact did that. They convened a series of scientific workshops on each of these topics, um, measurement, uh, leakage, uh, additionality, permanence, on each of these topics. And it, we went to the scientific community and we said, you, many of you have been working to measure deforestation because you care about forests. You each have your own methodology for measuring forests. If you could come together and let the world know if it's possible to measure deforestation with a reasonable degree of accuracy, rather than saying, well, my measurement methodology is better than your measurement methodology, <laughs> if you could come together on it, um, that's a step that we need if we're going to have a mechanism to encourage reduction and reward and compensate reductions in emissions from deforestation. So we convened a workshop. It was held at the Carnegie Institute in Washington, D.C. Gus Silva Chavez was one of the conveners and Steve Schwartzman and Greg Asner, whose uh, who's measurement of uh, forests and coral reefs was in the New York Times this past Science Times this past Tuesday. Greg Asner of Stanford and Asner Lab uh, was one of the participants. There were uh, forest measuring experts from around the world, and they agreed that we can measure this. Mm -hmm. And they commun began communicating that to the U.S. and to the UNFCCC and to other governments. Um, one of the speakers at that event was the ambassador to the U.S., to the U.N. from Papua New Guinea, Robert Aisi. Mm -hmm. And Ambassador Aisi, uh, is at the meeting, had begun working with Kevin Conrad, the formation of the Coalition for Rainforest Nations, and had encountered this question of, can you measure this? And he implored the scientists. He said, while you're debating about whose measurement system is best, my forests are being destroyed. If you can reach agreement on this and take it to the UN, the governments will stand with you and we will get the UN to move on this. And the scientists were immediately interested and his, his remarks at that talk were critical in motivating the scientific community to understand the policy dimensions of their, of their work. Kevin, I think, has told you about how at the Montreal Conference of the Parties, the governments that were members of the Coalition for Rainforest Nations stood up individually and said, we want to have reductions in emissions from deforestation and degradation recognized. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking with Kevin how we need a better moniker than compensator reductions. And mm -hmm. I think he or someone else came up with red reducing emissions from deforestation. And 
I remember Steve Schwartzman saying over and over again to colleagues from the NGO community who were not keen on this, this is not about the crediting the uptake of carbon in forests. This is about emissions. Mm -hmm. Surely we can all agree that we must reduce emissions going into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And on that point, we were able to get broad agreement. This is about emissions in the first instance, mm -hmm. reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation. Right, right, right. Okay, and what were the biggest challenges to pulling this red together? Was it, was it the science or was it the persuasion? Was it the methodology? What was... Everything was a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, St Steve and colleagues, as I mentioned, published this crucial article in Climatic Change uh, called Compensated Reductions, which got the concept on the scientific agenda. Mm -hmm. um, so it was important that in the in the in the scientific in the academic scientific community, the policy dimension of all the research that had been going on about tropical forests about uh, uh, deforestation, about the drivers of deforestation, all of that, have a policy context around it. Um, at the same time, it was crucially important to get governments um, comfortable with the idea that reducing emissions from deforestation was as valid atmospherically and policy-wise as reducing emissions from fossil fuels. And one of the things that we did was we simply taught it up what are the emissions from deforestation? And on my little chart of green bars, I have another chart that uh -huh. adds up the green bars and compar compares them to the emissions of the world's trans transport sectors. And it turns out that at the time, the emissions from deforestation were equal to the emissions of all the cars and trucks and buses and trains and airplanes in the world. Mm -hmm. And that got people's attention. That was, yeah, that was another one of those epiphanies. And it was this one report, and it was the first one where you actually approached deforestation as, as a sector, in a sense. That's right. And because uh, it had been country by country, which was powerful enough. And then suddenly saying... 20%. Oh my god, this is amazing. And then and then and then you have to look at what's causing the deforestation. And that was a whole other challenge because you really didn't I mean, I know when I as I was coming to understand this, it seemed that deforestation was caused by timber companies chopping trees to, you know, to make pulp and paper. And then it it slowly emerges that to to me it slowly emerged that deforestation was was caused by agriculture. And often, you know, farmers chopping the forest to make way for for farms. Was that always known in this circle, or was that also something that was coming into focus slowly among the experts? It was coming into focus slowly, and one of the key pieces of evidence was mapping that Steve Schwartzman, Greg Asner, and many others in, did satellite mapping. And so you have to remember that satellite technology was moving forward and satellite data was becoming available. Mm -hmm. And so they took these satellite maps and they sat down and they geolocated them onto, onto actual areas of forest. And what they demonstrated with using satellite mapping over time, sort of the way a time-lapse photograph of a flower opening. Mm -hmm. um, they did time-lapse satellite photography of the construction of roads mm -hmm. in previously roadless areas of forest, particularly in the Amazon. And you see it happen. You see the road go through the forested area, which means you need satellite imagery with resolution fine enough to see the road. Mm -hmm. And then you see the deforestation spreading out from the sides of the road on either side, almost like little rootlets, yeah. as uh, as the, the areas of forest that were previously inaccessible uh, become readily accessible via a road. Uh, 
Uh, people go into the forest and chop it down for cattle, for soy, um, for palm oil. It depends on the area in the world where this is happening. Uh, but uh, the advent of the satellite data uh, allowed that mapping to be demonstrated. And one could also demonstrate with that same satellite mapping the uh, power of protected areas and indigenous demarcated indigenous lands in protecting against the deforestation frontier. Mm -hmm. And innocent lives were shed protecting yep. those lands. But the fact that you could see it so vividly from the satellite maps helped foster those epiphanies among right. government delegates. Um, now, one thing I also want to mention, so 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, the European Union is taking the lead in climate in uh, using a tool that previously had been advocated by the United States, and that's emissions cap and trade. Mm -hmm. The EU had established its emissions trading system, ca capped the emissions of 12,000 installations uh, across Europe in amazing uh, policy and political feat, and those emissions began to decline. Mm -hmm. And we know that some of that decline was economic related, but others of it was I mean, because of Eastern Europe and the yes, wall of the wall, yeah. Yes, but, but much of it was driven by the ETS. And the Europeans were afraid that allowing an influx of credits from reducing emissions from deforestation would flood their market and drive their carbon price too low which was kind of like, well, wait a minute. First you said it wasn't a problem. Now you say it's too much of a problem that right. we can't tackle. Both of those are invalid reasons for, <laughs> for uh, declining to tackle the problem. Um, so, but that fear of market flooding still exists mm -hmm. and still animates uh, a number of people, particularly in Europe, to oppose the inclusion of red in carbon markets, even though every day that goes by, I think to myself, there is a villager in East Africa chopping down trees because they don't have access to a fuel-efficient cook stove, and we could, and they didn't want to destroy that forest. They just want to feed their family, mm -hmm. and we could have saved that forest if this mechanism had been up and running. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing that always. I mean, the key word in cap and trade is cap. If the um, if the cap and trade identifies places that you, where you can reduce even deeper, then you lower the cap. So the whole thing is lower the cap, keep pushing the cap down lower. A lot, a lot of the criticism implies that the cap isn't reducing and that you're letting a company off the hook. But actually, if you're saying you can reduce emissions more dramatically by, you know, go for the low-hanging fruit. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, deal with that. And then, and then you know. And ratchet that cap down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, one place where their criticism has been very valid is with the clean development mechanism. Mm -hmm, yeah. Because in the Kyoto Protocol, as you were discussing earlier, some countries, and Brazil was one of the, the architects of the clean development mechanism, it feels a lot of pride of authorship of it, um, but those countries wanted the trade, but they didn't want the cap. Mm -hmm. And the problem with trading when you don't have a cap is that uh, if you say to me, Annie, if you eat fewer croissants for breakfast than you were otherwise planning to do, you can sell me some of your extra croissants. 
I'll say, you know, actually, I was planning to eat six croissants for <laughs> breakfast this morning, but I'm only going to eat three, and I'll sell you the other three. And unless you really have monitored my breakfast consumption, you're not going to know whether I've inflated my breakfast baseline or not. Mm-hmm. And so the clean development mechanism has not delivered, in my view, on the the clean or the development that people hoped for mm. and part of the reason is because it didn't have the cap right because developing countries did not have a cap and so you were able to take an emission a company in germany could offset by financing a, a project in china or someplace like that and but china also didn't have a cap back then and and that was the problem and so fast forward to today we now have a situation where the world's airlines have taken a cap on the emissions of international flights with over 80 countries deciding to enroll their airlines in this program, the Carbon Offsetting and Reduction System for International Aviation, CORSIA. Will Red Plus credits be allowed in this system? What the Red Plus countries have said is we're stepping up to the plate, we're taking at the level of our whole country or an entire geopolitical subdivision of our country, we're taking a reference level, kind of like a cap. We're saying... Which is a historical uh, historical rates of deforestation. A historical rate of deforestation. And if we can reduce deforestation below our historical rates, well verified, we would like to be able to sell those reductions account for them under our Paris commitments so that they are not double counted. Right. Um, and we would like to be able to sell them to airlines. Mm-hmm. And my feeling is potentially that mechanism that I hoped for so long ago in mm-hmm. Kenya could actually get up and running so that the next time you visit Kenya, mm-hmm. the emissions of your flight could be offset in a way that helps the people of Kenya who want to reduce emissions from deforestation, do so. We'll come back to the issue of airlines in a second, but let's just pause for a moment to consider the breadth of the challenge and the solutions that we're dealing with here. We're connecting the actions of farmers in Kenya and miners in Kentucky with airplanes high in the sky. Climate change requires a complete restructuring of everything we do. People like Annie have known that for decades. And there are thousands of them out there. Lots of people have been moving this thing forward. We also have young people like Greta Thunberg or U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rihanna Gunn-Wright, who we've had on the show. Kudos to them for pushing this thing out into the open, really giving it some energy. To really fix the mess, however, We need to know what works, what doesn't, and why. And that's what I'm trying to focus on in Bionic Planet. These history lessons are important because we're drifting into silly territory here, replaying old debates that were resolved more than a decade or more ago. And we simply cannot afford to waste our time doing that now. If we're going to funnel this energy that's finally coming in, we need to know how to funnel it to where it will do the most good. If you think I'm doing a good job in helping you understand how to funnel it. I encourage you to help me generate more and better episodes by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com or at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. 
There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. The addresses again are bionic-planet.com and patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Of course, you can also help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every one of you who hears the show all the way to the end. And that adds up. Finally, if you're tight on cash, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps, because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. So we, we have the Paris Agreement. We have Article 6 being being debated now. So we're, we're, ham- we're trying to hammer out what happens to, you know, internationally transferred emission reductions under the Paris Agreement. And at the same time, we've got the global airline sector and the shipping sector, which are outside of the Paris Agreement, because these are emissions that transfer between countries. I always get confused when I go into this. Maybe you can help us understand what exactly is happening under Corsia, which is the, what does Corsia stand for again? Uh, It's the Carbon Offsetting and Reduction Scheme for International Aviation. (laughs) And if you go back to the days of the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, Mm -hmm. the Kyoto Protocol established the premise that every country is responsible for its own emissions. Mm -hmm. What about the emissions of a flight or a ship going from one country to another? The countries at the time of the Kyoto Protocol couldn't agree on whose emissions those are. Are they the emissions of the country of departure? The country of arrival? How about the citizenship of the passengers? How about the citizenship of the freight? So they couldn't agree, and they handed the issue of how to deal with those emissions over to the International Civil Aviation Organization, which is the UN body established in the 1940s to create rules, harmonized rules for international aviation. And they handed the shipping emissions issue over to the International Maritime Organization, or IMO. Um, the, those emissions contribute to the warming of the planet. So they are covered by the Paris Agreement in the sense that All countries under the Paris Agreement have a commitment to try to avert more than two degrees of warming and limit warming, if possible, to no more than 1.5 degrees. So the the ambition of the emissions is is covered by the Paris Agreement, Mm -hmm. but the process for tackling the emissions, um, the the climate treaty parties asked IMO and ICAO the two sister UN bodies to deal with. Um, Thus far, IMO set for itself a goal of cutting ship emissions of international shipping in half by 2050. Mm -hmm. They established that goal last year, and they're trying to figure out how to implement it. ICAO, by contrast, has not adopted a long-term target like that, but has adopted Corsia, which caps the emissions of international flights at 2020 levels for the years 2021 through 2035. And it allows uh, airplanes who are trying to meet that goal to reduce the emissions of the flights directly, use more efficient aircraft, better air traffic control, and so on, 
use alternative fuels that emit less over their life cycle or uh, use carbon reductions earned in other sectors provided they meet eligibility criteria set by uh, both set by the uh, 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 the International Civil Aviation Organization, but the Paris Agreement parties who are working under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement about accounting for transfers of mitigation outcomes have some say in how that's going to be accounted for. Okay. And there's also a, a, a kind of a stink going on about what offsets will be recognized because you have these old CDM offsets. A lot of them were experimental in their day, and we could say in some cases the experiment failed. They're not, you know, we know that they don't really reduce emissions, right? Or they didn't reduce emissions. Um, well, there are some CDM projects that did some well. Some did. Some did well. And but it's hard to tease out the ones that did well from the ones that didn't. And also, um, it, 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 you could say, right, let's try to just allow the most recent ones because Corsia was agreed in outline by the International Civil Aviation Organization in 2016. So any project registered with the CDM after 2016 must be uh, looking toward Corsia as its potential future market and therefore it's additional. It wouldn't have happened but for the possibility Because of yeah, they were Corsia. thinking to themselves we're going to create this emission mm -hmm. reduction in order because we know this is coming and we want to sell into it. But that's a little bit uh, stretching the argument in my view because first no one knew if these units would be allowed into Corsia. Uh, second, some of the projects in the clean development mechanism that are the most recent to have been approved are the least additional in the sense that carbon prices for CDM credits were between zero and one cent a ton uh -huh. at the time these projects were approved. So it's pretty hard to say that the prospect of finance was crucial to the project's development. And uh, Unless they were thinking ahead. I mean, they're thinking where we, you know, you buy a house. But some of those, like large dams in Brazil, are being built now anyway, mm -hmm. without any carbon finance. Right, right. So um, it's... This is going to be a very difficult knot for the countries to untie. Yeah. Annie Petzonk of the Environmental Defense Fund, wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet, the last of three episodes in a series covering the genesis of Red Plus, but certainly not the last time we'll cover this critical issue. I'm covering these same issues in a bit more depth in two series on Ecosystem Marketplace. One is called Forest Farms and the Global Carbon Sink, and the other is called Shades of Red Plus. So if you want to go a bit deeper into the weeds, be sure to check those out. And you'll find links in the show notes for today's episode. If you like what you hear in general, and if you think I'm generating value, if you think I'm helping you and others understand this stuff, then help me deliver more episodes by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com or at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. You could cap it at one, I think it might be $2, but basically a dollar a month is what the lowest I think you can go, which is fine with me. It all adds up. The addresses again are bionic-planet.com and patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Of course, you can also help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every one of you who hears the show to the end. And again, 
That adds up. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we must reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. And with that, I'm wrapping up today's show. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.